Hello and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, histories, and other mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. Okay, Jen, let's do this thing. Oh, you stayed. I did stay. I just held on is all I did. (laughs) (laughs) I had to figure out a few things. Yeah. So what are you doing today? What am I recording or what am I doing? Because COVID is still kicking my ass. Oh, that's right. Still freaking positive. Did you ever get a vaccination? Yeah. No shit. I'll say, um, I got a vaccination and a boost. I uh, was three weeks out from COVID, but I still don't really have any sense of smell. Well, that doesn't give me any hope because I don't have any taste or smell still. Yeah. Smelling weirdly enough is part of my job. (laughs) <laughs> right. and, and I, just, I literally just have to ask other, like I asked my coworkers, like what which one did you think <laughs> <laughs> yeah and um I mean I have small symptoms I would say like if I didn't know I had COVID I'd have a cold okay but the exhaustion I mean when I sleep you could you could murder me you could move me murder me bury me I would not wake up Oh, no shit. It is so bad. And just trying to get up is, it's hard. And this week, I've been going to bed like 530. And I will sleep until 7. Right past my alarms and everything. Like the exhaustion. The doctor said, you know, I got to get out. Get out of bed. I got to get walking. Fuck off, bro. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Yesterday I did that. How is that going to make you less exhausted? I have no idea. Don't ask me. But I, sometimes doctors are assholes. <laughs> yeah. Or you just have absolutely no idea what, you know, what is that going to do for me? I don't know. Get things moving in my body. I mean, I will agree with this. I've been in bed for two weeks. So yesterday I got out of bed and acted like a real human. What happened? And it wasn't as bad as I thought, but it still was about the same where like the first, once I actually get up and like, I got an hour to really like wake up, move around, have coffee that I can't taste anyways, that I, I'm good until like one. Then after that, it's like a slow downhill, like Uh by four. I'm so god darn exhausted. Really? Yeah. Wow. So it's crazy. Yeah, I've been up and acting like a normal person for like a week now. (laughs) Give me hope that maybe next week. I just need to get past the exhaustion. I don't know how we do that, but I have got nothing done. (laughs) No, that's fine. (laughs) Like, take as much time as you need. Right. So today I'm going to do a story. Raskana Sikorsky. Okay. I'm going to do a story about a married couple who was murdered in Niles, Michigan, that I got off the TV show On the Case with Paula Zahn. Footprints and Whispers. Your Discovery Plus is great. Yeah, honestly, every dollar <laughs> I spend on it, I'm, I'm still liking it. Because what I do is I'll watch an episode and then I'll read an article to make sure everything was correct. Because sometimes they gloss over shit that I feel like is important. You know what I mean? 
All right. Well, I'm going to let you go first because mine has an attempted murder, but no, oh. nobody Excellent. died. So wow. I'll, we'll end with that. Okay. Yeah. Yours is going to be the better uplifting one. So mine, the show starts with Paula and she goes, I want to tell you about the little towns of Mich the little town of Niles, Michigan, only 200 miles east of Detroit. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Immediately. So what? So I even paused the video with the captions on to make sure I heard her correctly that she said 200 miles east of Detroit. The reason why I know that's wrong is the only thing east of Detroit is Canada. Right. Okay. <laughs> the east side of Detroit has the Detroit River as a border. What's on the other side of the Detroit River? Ontario, Canada. It's Canada. Okay. So You're going to start writing letters to these shows. I really am. I can see you doing that. Like, east? Really? You're in the water? Yeah. For real. You're in Canada. <laughs> the river's only so wide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's only a few feet wide. It's not that fucking big. So I get out my handy dandy map and I see that Niles, Michigan is a little city on the west side of Michigan, closer to the border with Indiana. Closer right. to Chicago than Detroit. Okay. <laughs> so, so it's like, huh. but I have to forgive her. It's like somebody led her wrong. Right. Nothing, nothing in Michigan is east of Detroit. All right. All right. <laughs> so this episode is about this couple that lives in Niles, Michigan. They're brutally murdered and there's very few clues to the actual killer. So on February 10th, 2010, it was part of a Super Bowl weekend, which is a big American football sporting event. And John Tawacki Sr. was concerned about his son, John Jr. and his daughter-in-law, Carolyn, because they both failed to show up to work that morning. And they worked together at a local music shop. So John Sr. tries calling the couple several times, and then he decides he's going to drive to their home. Now that morning, John Sr. and Carolyn's mother, Sharon McKnight, they both had feelings of like impending doom. And Carolyn's mom, Sharon, had spoken to her on the phone earlier that morning. And Carolyn was like, oh, you know, rushing around. She's like, I'm sorry, I got to get ready for the day. I got to hang up. And that was around 6, 10 a.m. that morning. When Sharon was called by Concerns Friends saying that Carolyn and John never arrived at work, she was told by John Jr. that he was going to go to the home. He's, he's like, I'll go to the home. I'm going to see if they're there because John Jr. lives kind of close to them. So he looks, he gets there. Both vehicles are in the driveway and the front door is unlocked. So John Jr. or John Sr. steps inside and that's when he sees his son lying face down in the hallway. And once he touches him, he realizes that his son has passed away. So then John Sr. finds Carolyn lying um, in the living room and she's like propped up against the couch, like sitting against the couch. And he can tell that she had been shot in the chest. So he calls 911 and the first responder on the scene was John Moore, a Michigan State trooper. And the detective assigned to the case would be Fabian Suarez. So Detective Suarez looks over the crime scene, thinking it's one of the most violent crime scenes he had ever encountered. They were able to determine that John Jr. had been stabbed in the back multiple times, as well as shot twice. Carolyn had been shot, stabbed, and severely beaten. And it looks like the couple had been taken by surprise in their home. So they, there wasn't any sign of forced entry. Nothing was stolen from the home because there was like Items near the victim, which would be taken during robbery, like jewelry, electronics, even some cash. Yeah. And the brutality of these crimes lead the detectives to think like this is either an emotional killing or like a sadistic killing. So, like, all right. So Sharon receives a call that Sharon is the mom of Carolyn. She receives a call from the um, Tarwackies and they tell her that her daughter is dead. 
She then went to Carolina and John's house. She sees the swarm of police. And since the couple was so well-liked in the community because they ran a music program for children, lots of people were ready to talk about any information they might have. So based on the crime scene, detectives believe that Carolyn was getting ready to leave the house first. She was in the living room with her coat and scarf on. They think she was the first person to be attacked, seeing the person come through the front door. Detectives believe that she retreated to the living room and called to John Jr. It's believed that John Jr. was in the bathroom shaving when his wife calls out. And as John comes out of the bathroom, they think that he was actually shot first. The first shot went into his jaw and the second shot was right above his right nipple. And they believe that he then collapses. The killer then shot Carolyn and missed. They shot at her. They missed. The two more shots were fired at Carolyn, one hitting her in the forearm and the other one hitting her in the spine. The attacker then viciously beats Carolyn and then stabs her four times in the chest. A stab wound that I know it's just brutal. A stab wound that cut her aorta was like the killing blow. And they feel like now that now that she's dead, the fella, you know, the, the killer feels really sure that she's dead. He goes back to John. John's lying on the floor, but he's still alive, even though he's been shot. He then stabs John 10 times. And they think that this whole thing only took like just a couple minutes. And at the scene, the detectives weren't able to find any fingerprints, no DNA evidence and no murder weapon. And the only thing they were able to be sure of was that the killer entered and exited the couple's back door. And this is because they're able to see his footprints in the snow. One set shows him walking up to the door and the second set shows him running out of the house. You can tell the difference between walking and running steps because we take longer strides when we're running. I feel like this would be planned because there's no fingerprints. Well, honestly, stuff like that. You would think so, but when you're going to find out that this dude is just a fucking lucky idiot meth head. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry to ruin it for you. (laughs) Following the footsteps, the detectives are able to tell that the suspect jumped the back fence and ran into a wooded alleyway. They then walked all the way to the main road. And by the main road, detectives were able to see some blood in one of the footprints. So the blood was sent to the um, crime lab for DNA testing. And the path that the killer took made the detectives think that he was familiar with the area. And they also believe that the family, the killer was familiar with the family's 200 pound mastiff because the dog, the detectives found the dog closed in a stairwell with two doors. And they were suspicious because the couple never closed the dog in any room. A neighbor to the Tarwakis called into the station to tell detectives about a suspicious person they saw on the morning of the murders. It was a white man with dark pants and a black hoodie with the hood pulled up. And the witness had seen him in the alleyway that went behind the Tarwaki home, moving at a brisk jog or maybe like a brisk walk, maybe a light jog. And she was getting ready for work. So she goes, I know the time was like 7.45 a.m. So they start looking for Keelan McKnight. He's a 16-year-old who lived at the couple's house. He was the nephew of Carolyn's and uh, was living with John and Carolyn due to a problem with his relationship with his stepdad. He'd been with them at home the day of the homicide which detectives believe happened between 6.50 and a.m. and 8 a.m. So detectives believe Keelan is the last person to see them alive. They called the high school that Keelan attended and had them lock it down before removing Keelan, which I thought was just a little too fucking much. Right. And without explanation, they bring him to the police station. And it's in the interrogation room that he finds out his family's been murdered, which I feel like, once again, you should have at least had an adult with him. He's 16 years old, you know? I thought you had to. Yeah, well, they didn't. 
And in this video, he appears so distraught when they tell him, like instantly, you can tell he's so upset. And Keelan um, tells them that he left for school around 6.30. So the detectives need to verify what time Keelan comes to school to see if he fits the timeline. The detectives straight ask him if he killed his aunt and uncle. He's like, no. Detectives couldn't find any show shoes that Keelan owned that matched the ones at the crime scene. They were all the wrong tread, the wrong size. And the school verifies that he was in attendance during the time of the murder. He is cleared. Wouldn't you think you would do that first before locking down a school and taking a poor Which, kid? Which he just was, not to mention, like, that's a shame on him. Like, you locked down the school and took out this really bad kid. And what really happened was his aunt and uncle that he lived with was murdered. And you, like, embarrassed him in front of his um, fellow peers. You know what I mean? Right. Why? That's a little bit of over-fucking-kills, guys. God. Jeez. Yeah. So the detectives do notice that when they look at the situation with Keelan, that the Tarwackies had recently filed for guardianship of him. And his mom, Katie McKnight, which was Carolyn's sister, agreed to the guardianship initially. But later on, she did want her son to move back in with her. And a couple days before the murder, Carolyn's lawyer contacted her sister, Katie, wanting to arrange for full and permanent custody of Keelan. So they're like, oh, shit. So maybe it's because... You know, she's trying to take the kid away. Carolyn and Katie were two sisters who did not get along. And the detectives decided to look deeper in the relationship between Kellen and her sister. So Katie doesn't match the description of the man that the neighbors saw, but her husband David does. So they're starting to wonder if the homicides were done over child custody issues, which, you know, happens. Mm -hmm. So the couple came into the police station to be questioned. David, Katie's husband, says he knew Katie didn't want to lose custody, but he wouldn't murder her anybody over the issue and Katie tells the detectives that she thought um, her sister always wanted Keelan as her own child. She always thought her sister was you know, trying to take Keelan from her. And she told detectives that like, I won't miss my sister, but I didn't kill her. Like, <laughs> yeah. So Katie and David both take polygraph exams and they both come back as inconclusive. So when the detectives look at David's alibi, they're able to see that he's at work when the homicides were um, committed and there's video surveillance at his place of employment. So his alibi is pretty solid. And there's also a scanner that he would use at work to verify his location throughout the day by scanning his palm print. So it's not like you can even say, Oh, it looks like him. Like, no, for sure. It's him. He's scanning his palm print. You know what I mean? Right. So detectives have now ruled out Keelan, David and Katie at the scene. The next step was to check to see if the married couple could have paid another person to commit the murders so detectives look through their bank records, but they don't find any substantial deposits or withdrawal, withdrawals, and they are cleared as suspects. So the DNA came back on the blood found in the footprints. It belonged to Carolyn. That's a dead end. Now, while processing the crime scene, they take video of everything in the home and they look for the murder weapon. They never found it. Two months after the murder, Sharon, who is Carolyn's mom, she decides to clean the house out. Like, you know, it's time. We got to do something with the house. While going through the freezer... Sharon finds a large bloodstained knife that was hidden in the bag, tucked between items. She finds the murder weapon. Holy shit. Yeah. So the knife went to the lab for test results, and Sharon told the detectives that it was part of a set of knives in the home. So this helps detectives advance their hypothesis on what happened. Detective Suarez believes that the murderer only had five bullets, and when they ran out, they had to go get a knife from the kitchen to finish killing the couple. So Detective Suarez believes that the killer putting the knife in the freezer shows that they weren't actually thinking clearly, right? They're just trying to hide it. Mm 
Right. And the results from testing the knife came back and it showed that it did have blood evidence on it from both John and Carolyn, but no fingerprints and no DNA from the attacker. A woman then calls the police station and she says that they have an extended family member who's been bragging about killing Carolyn and John. This man's name was Keith Lintz. Keith had already been interviewed by the police and he lived a couple blocks away from the Tarwakis. Keith had been known as a sub- to have substance abuse issues and he had assaults on his record. At the time that he was interviewed originally, he claimed to have an alibi. Keith's mother, Sherry Lintz, and his half-brother would testify that Keith was at home sleeping the morning of the murders. Keith was living with his mother who lived close to the Tarwaki home. Sherry said that when she woke up to leave for work at 5.30 a.m., Keith was sleeping on the love seat in the living room. And later when clarifying the timeline, Sherry stated that he was still there when she left for work around 6.20, 6.25 a.m., which is still before when the murders were, you know, had occurred. Mm-hmm. So Sherry and Keith's half-brother tried to say that when they did see Keith, he wasn't wearing any black clothing, but he was wearing his work uniform of khaki pants and a blue shirt. But Keith's employer is like, no, 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 no. The day of the murder, Keith did not come to work and he did not call in. There was no reason for him to be in his work clothes. A relic? They yeah, said they had talked to him before. Yeah, well, they said, oh, last time we saw him, he was in his work clothes. And they also said he was sleeping. And the mom was like, no, no, he was sleeping at 530. Well, when I left, he was sleeping. It was like 620, 625. But it's like they were murdered around seven. So that's still no alibi. He could have left the house after you left the house. You know what I mean? So our relatives of Keith had called the police to turn him in. That person was from Nashville, Tennessee. And Detective Suarez flew down there because the witness said, I have other people down here that will corroborate the story. So when Detective Suarez talked to the relatives in Tennessee, they had details about the murder that had never been shared with the press. The police had kept secret about the fact that Carolyn had been beaten and that they had both been stabbed. The only thing released was the fact that they had been shot in their home. And Keith's relatives knew about the stabbing and the beating through Keith. So Keith Lentz told them that he was high on meth and he broke into their home to rob them. He actually just basically opens the door and he panics when he sees at their home and he kills them. He then runs off without taking anything because he's so panicked. And while talking to his relatives, Keith mentioned that the police had found his footprints and that there were and there's like five or six people that had the details of the murder given to them by Keith. So they believe Smart that man. Could, Yeah, yeah, just a genius. They believe that when he first opens the doors, when he sees the dogs, so he just closes the stairwell door, which closes the dog in. And because nothing had happened besides him, him walking the door, like the people didn't get scared. There wasn't anybody around when he first opened the door that it really didn't alert the dog. And he was able to just close the door real quick. And a man named Shane Zimmerman was a former cellmate of Keith Lentz, and he agreed to testify against Keith. So Shane goes back to jail and is placed in the same cell as Keith. And Shane said Keith did confess to killing the Tarwakis and that he was feeling remorse over the murders. So a large part of the court case was against Keith was the testimonies, because remember, there's no other really info that he killed them. And the people are like, no, he said he beat them. He said he stabbed them, which were things that were never released. Keith's shoe size did fit the ones found in the snow, and he matches the witness's description. He was found guilty of the murders of Carolyn and John Tawaki. And Keith currently lives at the Carson City Correctional Facility. He receives two years for felony firearm charges. He also received two sentences of life in prison 
for two different, two different charges of first degree premeditated homicide. Wow. Yeah. I can't, I know. And honestly, if his relatives wouldn't have said anything, like nobody would have ever known because there was nothing to point toward him. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I don't understand people murder people and then they talk about it. I don't get that. Or soon I'm going to tell you one where they um, murder someone to cover up a robbery. Just go to jail for a robbery. Just yeah. go to jail for a robbery. Right. Going to jail for murder is extra. <laughs> Just get caught for the robbery. Creating a murder on top of that is not helping you. I guarantee. I guarantee. Yeah. So mine's on Roscana Sikorsky, R-O-S-K-A-N-A, and it's S-I-K-O-R-S-K-I. Okay. Just in case I pronounced that incorrectly. So Mm -hmm. Roscana was adopted at a young age, along with her brother and sister from a Polish orphanage. Okay. Life was good for them um you know they you know really took to american life and Roscana specifically was outgoing and was considered to be quite intelligent she was known to suffer from nightmares from the trauma she experienced in the orphanage but overall her life was good okay around 2014 she was in her mid-teens and had gotten into using Facebook. And at this point, she was known to continue to suffer from the nightmares and had fallen into like a lonely state. Okay. Facebook is when she would meet a man age 20. And at this point, just so everybody knows, she's like 15. So, you know, she's on Facebook. She meets a man, age 20, Michael Rivera. They chatted frequently, and it seemed he understood her and the trauma she had suffered at the orphanage. The relationship grew into an intimate one. And when her parents found out about the relationship, they got the sense that Michael was using and manipulating her, which, of course, you're 15, he's 20. There's some manipulation going on. Yeah. They took steps to stop the relationship. First by like limiting her access to electronics, forbidding her to have contact with him. And then it went so far as to, they actually started legal action against him. Ooh, so they're serious. Yeah. Okay. This is where things would escalate. And Michael would convince her to murder her family the ultimate goal for michael was to get the statutory charges against him dropped so at this point he's in court he's been charged okay throughout september 2014 he and roxana talked about and planned the murders On on October 17, 2014, she was 15 at this time, she would attempt to murder her family. Oh, wow. 
in court, it was revealed that Michael sent her a message that read, baby, I'm here. I'm here. Just cut the throats. Just stab their necks, baby, at the artery. Oh, Jesus Christ. So, like, this is going to be an important moment right here. Yeah. This text. She went to her brother's room and slashed his throat repeatedly with a blade. During, her brother? Yep, her brother. How old is he? He was younger. Okay. I don't know the age. I think, I might not be right, but I think he was like not quite a teen, like a preteen, if I remember correctly. Could be. Because she's like 15, so I think he was like a little bit younger. Yeah. Okay, sorry. No. <laughs> I'm looking back on my thing to see, but I don't, I didn't capture any. That must not have been in anything i seen. Yeah, no problem. So he was younger. Uh -huh. And so during the incident, her sister woke up and began screaming. This woke up her parents and she fled out the window. Okay. During the incident, Michael was said to be sending texts to her, cheering her on, telling her to continue and not to get cold feet as he waited outside of the home. No shit. The, so she escapes out of the window. They flee the scene, the two of them. The parents called the police and the search was on for the two of them. They were, once they were found, they were arrested. Rascana was charged with assault with intent to murder. And her brother did survive. Oh, and, really? Okay. Yep, yep. No one died. And conspiracy to commit homicide. The judge in 2016 made the ruling she would be charged as an adult. Oh, wow. Michael was charged with four counts of conspiracy, one count of attempted murder, one count of using a computer to commit a crime, and felonious assault with a dangerous weapon. Oh, shit. Through the trial, her parents stood by her, saying she was manipulated by Michael. In March 2016, she was offered a plea deal, which would give her a sentence of 10 to 20 years. She took the plea deal against her parents telling her she shouldn't. Oh, Jesus. And then that a lawyer allowed her to plea. And the parents were very vocal about how she didn't understand fully what was going on. Uh. In March 2017, she went to court for her appeal. During the court hearing, her attorney from the trial took the stand and in a Detroit news article it was said he told her that she had a significant chance of being convicted because she didn't have a distress defense because she played such an active role in plotting out the murders. Yeah. After five court hearings on you know for the appeal out of nowhere, she withdrew her appeal. There is no known reason as to why she did this. Okay. And she is serving a 10 to 20 year sentence. And her earliest release date is 2024. As for Michael, in his trial, he said he didn't know how old she was. 
and it was a surprise to him she was so young. But give me a break because you just got charged over here. Yeah. You know? So you darn well know there was something in there saying that she was underage, for God's sakes. For shit's sakes. And the fact that she was in like ninth grade or 10th grade should have told you, girl. You know what I mean? And this part is where that quoted text I said matters you know mm-hmm. he's telling her you know she just has to cut their throats and all this and cheering her on and he says he was only trying to help her okay he's just trying yeah. to help her he's trying to help her out well the jury found him guilty And he was sentenced to life and was placed at the Michigan Macomb Correctional Facility. Okay. Good deal. Because, you know, he was just, you know, trying to help her out by, you know, plotting to kill her family. and Pushing her to kill her family. Pushing her to, you know, Mm -hmm. cheering her on. You can do this, babe. Just just slice their throats. Like, what the hell? Like, that you are even that stupid. And that your lawyer's that stupid to even say that. Like you got all these text messages throughout this whole period of time that, you know, the beginning, this happened like at 2 a.m. So prior to her going into her brother's room, you're freaking cheering her on and shit. You're hyping her up. She can do this. You're You're just trying to help her murder her family. And go to jail. It's one of those things like, did you really think we would believe that? Like, maybe this is bullshit he told his mom that she put up with. It's like, no, we're not your mom and we don't believe your bullshit. I was just helping her. No, nobody believes that, bro. (laughs) I did check because I thought, come on, somebody's going to help this girl, right? Because I don't think she should be in prison. I think she was young. From a whole nother country, she was lonely. You know, she was taken advantage of and manipulated. I mean, it's clear. Yeah. So I thought, in all these years, somebody would have went and helped her, right? Like, yeah. There would are those like the change people and oh, like wrongly health professionals. Yeah, somebody. Yeah. And then like get her the hell out of prison. Her parents stuck, you know, stood by her side. Yeah. You know, this whole time. But nobody did because she, I looked her up and Otis, she's still there. Yeah, no shit. Like, and I'm just thinking, well, I mean, at this point, I mean, you're getting, she could get out next year or two years from now, 2024. But, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't feel good that she's still there. I don't, I don't think she wanted to kill her family. I think this guy, you know, of course he wanted to get off. She kills him. And then, you know, in his mind, she kills him. Yeah. And he can not be charged. You know, the other case gets dropped. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so sorry that that happened to her and her family. And I'm glad that her brother is okay. Right. See, yeah. we don't get many stories like that. True, that is an uplifting one. And I want to make you um, feel better. I know um, 
you're not the only one who had COVID making you double up on stuff. Remember how last week you did Roxanne Wood? Mm-hmm. Well, I realized um, this morning that you did this case with Carolyn and John um, back in 2020, in 2020. Really? Yeah. You know, I love, <laughs> I just want everybody to know. Yeah. That we had a lot of cases in Michigan with kids. And we gotta yeah. avoid those. And, to- <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, and, and sometimes we're, it makes you double up. <laughs> yeah. And and on top of that, we're just old. Who can that remember too. that? That too. And my favorite part is when I sometimes I'll do something and I'll be like, oh, you know, that that does remind me of this. And we never did it. Or I'll do a whole thing. And never realize that we've done it before. I can go both ways. I can think that we've done stuff before and we never have. Well, I'm going to let you know that after last episode, yeah. I had like two or three written and ready. Yeah. And then you sent me the document and then I went back and let me, let me look. And then we had done all of them. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> So thing. I was like, you got to be kidding. And I don't even know how I could manage to get that many. You no, know what I mean? Not. Like one here and there. But I look at it as there's somebody that, you know, didn't go back. And they're new listeners. And well, they that... get to hear the story. And two, I've listened to some of the stuff, you know, uh-huh. that we recorded when we first started. And I'm sure whatever comes out of my mouth now is <laughs> Then how I ummed and and it at the beginning. Okay. Yeah, I always say it's like um. So we crawl. We had to crawl before we walked. All right. (laughs) Right. So if you hear it again later, just know we're probably walking in the later one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All right. Well, next time I am actually gonna do. It's not a murder. Oh. At all. Okay. Jen's coming with no murder. I came across this article about an an escaped uh, woman that escaped in like the 70s from the women's correctional facility. Okay. I think it was her Huron Valley. And that she was never found. She still hasn't been found. Okay. And then there was things that there was a murder during the time after she escaped that maybe that was her. I go through all that story, but what it made me look into was like, who's escaped and still out there from Michigan prisons. Yeah. Did you find stuff? There is a quite, quite a few. Okay. And there's one interesting thing about it. And I can't tell you guys, because that's like the most interesting thing I have to say on the story. Yeah. Don't give it away yet. So, but yeah, there are actually, I would not have thought there were so many people that had escaped and that are still out there. No shit. So it was yeah. a bad surprise. I was just surprised. But none um, of these people are like murderers or anything. I mean, this is like assault, credit card fraud. Oh, okay. You know, okay. like these people are not like they've murdered somebody. Yeah, my next article is going to be one which when I go to look them up in Otis later to see how their sentencing went. She looks one of the women look like a twin to a coworker that I had. 
like really? a twin, a fucking twin. And since I watched the show and then like looked up the article, you know, they have the, like the actors. You kind of expect them to look a little like, no, they don't look anything like the actors. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, my God, is that you? <laughs> What's that? What's that called? Is it a doppelganger? doppelganger? Yeah, yeah, a doppelganger. Yeah, it was definitely a co-worker's doppelganger. Or just her twin, swear to God. I want to go back and be like, yo, 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 you got a sister in jail? <laughs> <laughs> All right, until then. All right, until then. All right, bye. Bye.